Hello, everyone. Welcome to the NASPA Student Leadership Program's uh, Leadership Podcast. My name is John Mark Day, and I serve as the Director of Leadership and Campus Life at Oklahoma State University. I'm happy to be your host for the podcast, which is presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. On today's edition, we're going to talk about masculinity and leadership, two terms that our guest today has said mean everything and mean nothing. Uh, and so let's meet our guest, Dr. Dan Tillipaw. Dan is an associate professor and chair of the Department of Counselor Education at California Lutheran University. At Cal Lutheran, he primarily teaches in the Counseling and College Student Personnel Master's Program. His research interests are connected to social context, to higher education, particularly college men and masculinities, LGBT issues in higher education, intersectionality, sexual violence in higher education, as well as college student leadership development and education. Dan obtained his PhD in leadership studies with a specialization in higher education leadership from the University of San Diego in May 2012. He has a Master's of Education from the Counseling and Personnel Services Program, which is now the Student Affairs Concentration at the University of Maryland. So welcome, Dan. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so glad to be here today. Yeah, we're really glad to get to talk with you. We've got a great conversation planned. But before we get into that, I, I did a little bit of creeping on your social media, uh, and I saw that you recently saw the new revival of Little Shop of Horrors, which is starring MJ Rodriguez as Audrey. Now, Little Shop is one of my all-time favorite musicals, and there was a lot that was written about this particular staging and this casting uh, of MJ and George Salazar, some of the other folks they had in there. And, and there's a lot about this that I think intersects with your work. So tell me about being an audience member for this show. Oh, well, uh, yeah, I love I love theater, and I particularly um, musical theater is is a huge passion of mine. So I was so excited to see MJ and George Salazar in this particular staging. You know, I think it was really incredible to get to watch um, someone who, as a trans woman of color, um, portraying a role that historically, um, since sort of its initial iterization has been, or iteration has been, um, you know, a white blonde woman performing it in a particular way. And to see, you know, uh, MJ's portrayal of Audrey, um, uh, and then, um, and then George's portrayal, um, you know, just and his identity of being a queer man of color, um, like it, it just had a very different vibe in terms of the the staging and and things that you sometimes might not read if it were two white actors portraying the role. Just it, it suddenly just things the message of the of the show, um, the ways in which they interpreted the script and the song lyrics, um, the staging itself, it just, everything was, it was so beautifully done um, and super moving. Like I was definitely, uh, definitely had some tears in my eyes uh, at different parts of the show. Uh, and so, yeah, for me, it was, it was just a really moving piece of theater and probably one of the best sung um, shows that I've heard in a long time. So it was, um, it was great to be able to sort of see that and to also think about um, how do race, gender, um, different identities mediate sort of um, the ways in which we sort of understand um, ourselves, our others, in, in very nuanced ways. And so for me, it was, it was a great opportunity to see that show. Yeah, I think that's so cool because you're right, for so long, you know, anybody who's familiar with Little Shop of Horrors has this very particular image of who Audrey is and who that character is, with, with good reason, right? I mean, Ellen Green just, she's iconic and, and the Absolutely. way she played that. But seeing this interpretation, and, and you know, I've seen the, the YouTube clip that they did when they were on Conan, and it just, you think, oh, wow, this opens up all sorts of new interpretations. And, and it makes you really reflect on the power of art and how different people can, can bring whole new lenses to it, which is awesome. Absolutely, for sure. Okay, so, that, so then I've got to ask, if being such a big musical theater fan, um, if you if you could play any character in the world of musical theater, uh, if, if we were going to throw you on stage today, what would be your dream role in musical theater? 
Um, wow, that's that is quite the question. Um, <laughs> Oh, uh, well, so I have, I have said if I could do King George in Hamilton, I would be, that would be a great one. I've got the songs down. I'm ready to go. Um, so Lin-Manuel can give me a call anytime and I'll head my way to New York. Um, call you tonight and say, hey, we, we need you on stage in 10 minutes. And you're there. <laughs> right. um, I grew up doing theater. So, you know, for me, I, I like definitely have key roles that I've also done that I, I loved doing and there's just so much um, love to it. But like Prince Dauntless in Once Upon a Mattress was one of my favorites that I did um, growing up. And, and there are lots of others, but, um, you know, yeah, I, I definitely would say like contemporarily Hamilton, King George would be great. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Um, well, on a little bit of a different path, let's, let's talk about the research and things that you, that you do that you uh, engage in when you're not starring on stage uh, as, as King George. Uh, but you've got this great research uh, agenda on masculinity and LGBT issues and, and leadership development. Tell, tell us about what sets you on this path for this uh, set of research. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I think for me, um, like many folks um, uh, who are in the field of student affairs and higher ed, um, I was very lucky during my college um, experience at Ithaca College um, to be mentored by incredible um, professionals in the field. Um, and um, that really sparked me um, finding myself in a lot of ways. And so I, I, for me, there's sort of a parallel process between um, coming to the work that I now do, um, but also just uh, finding um, out aspects of my identity and who I am through my leadership um, and through my practice of leadership. And so, you know, for me, um, becoming an art, an, um, a resident assistant and doing orientation leader and becoming a student body president at Ithaca, it really helped me um, think about leadership in a, in a lot of different ways, um, very practically, particularly leadership in higher ed. Um, and then becoming a full-time professional, eventually uh, going to Maryland, studying leadership studies with Susan Comavez and um, understanding leadership theory and, and sort of the reverse of like theory to practice, but like practice the theory to practice, that yeah. sort of cycle um, really became interesting to me because, it, you know, at the time when I was at Maryland, uh, uh, Susan and her her colleagues on the research team for the leadership identity development model they were really doing a lot of their prime work during that time and that was that was super interesting to me because I just that model spoke to me in a lot of different ways it spoke to me of, of some of my own experiences it spoke to me in terms of really that shift of thinking about leadership really as a sort of formal leadership role to more about like leadership as a form of, of personal identity. And, and to me, that was incredibly important. But during this time frame, you know, I, I was very much sort of oriented to thinking about my queer identity. Um, and, and I would probably say my gay identity at the time, because I don't think that I was using the terminology of queer um, at that, that point in my life. Um, but thinking about what, what does my identity as a queer or as a gay man, how that was really central, that was very salient and, and navigating my leadership um, through that lens was a big piece that I was doing. And when I then became a full-time professional working in student activities and working with leadership programs, I was also doing a lot of advising at my college at the time where I worked, Goucher College in, in Towson, Maryland, um, around serving LGBTQ plus identified students and recognizing that for many of our queer men on campus, they were not accessing um, the LGBT student organization in the same ways that many of our queer women were. And so that was an interesting sort of thing that was sort of like a, a note in the back of my mind, like what's going on there. Um, and at the same time, I was developing a, quite a few relationships with 
um, queer men on campus and trying to mentor them and, and connect with them and, and get them involved in different ways. Um, and so there was some change to that, but but that really has stuck stuck with me for a while. And then I moved to the West Coast, and um, in my doc program at the University of San Diego, again, I was studying leadership and leadership theory, leadership practice. And in one of my qual classes, uh, one of my um, colleagues, um, Michael Collier, um, was doing a research project about men and, and service learning. And I was peer reviewing his, his work, and I was like, this is super interesting. Hmm. Um, and he was citing a lot from Michael Kimmel's Guyland, um, a very popular book um, yeah. that many folks have read. And, um, and so instantly I was sort of running out to, to get my own copy of, of, of Guyland. And if you actually, I, I have this same copy on my bookshelf here in my office, and if you thumb through it, it is just marked up. And I'm not a person who typically marks up a lot of books, um, but that one is marked up and lots of notes and lots of like sort of angry messages in the margins of like, this doesn't speak to me. And so what about others who might be like me? Like, how are they experiencing this? At the same time, I also, while I was doing my doc doctorate work, I also joined a gay rugby team in San Diego, um, okay. the San Diego Armada, and it was the first time that I also had been really connected with a group of guys. Um, I had not sort of spent a lot of time with guys, um, and I think a lot of that was also some of my own fear of not being, uh, well, fear of coming, stemming from being bullied as a kid in high school um, by other boys, um, feeling outside of the, the box of masculinity myself. And, um, you know, I think also some internalized homophobia in terms of like, I'll just remove myself rather than actually engaging because mm -hmm. they're not going to accept me and they're not going to like me. Mm -hmm. um, and so those, those all really have sort of led me to the work that I'm doing in terms of my research. I really think about my research as me-search. Um, a lot of the questions that I have are questions about my own experiences, either per personally or professionally working with students in the field. And so that's really sort of set me at looking at these different sections of young people and their development, um, particularly through the lens of intersectionality. Um, and, and that that's a huge motivation for me in terms of just uh, trying to have a better understanding for student affairs professionals and faculty members and folks who just work in higher ed uh, in different roles, how to better serve um, our students and, and how to give insight about what they're actually experiencing as they're mm -hmm. growing up and, and living and, and learning from us. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny, if you were to pull my copy of Guyland off of the shelves, I think you would see a lot of notes in the margins as well that sort of say, uh, but what about this? And what about this? And I think that was a, a reaction that a, that a lot of us had to that book uh, when that came out. So, yeah, very important work, but uh, sort of opened the door to some other conversations, I think. Absolutely. With your work that you have been uh, thinking about and publishing on and, and writing on and lecturing about, what do you hope that people get from it? Yeah, and that's a great question. And, you know, I think fundamentally, I hope for change. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I am a person who has, and, and this is not my, my concept, but, but critical hope is, is a key co concept um, in a lot of critical theory um, work. And, and for me, um, I, I have to hold on to critical hope that we can move the needle through the work. Um, I, I don't write this, um, I don't study what I study um, to like be printed in a journal and have no one use it. And, and mm -hmm. so that's like for me a big piece of how can I try to be better about public scholarship? How can I help through talks um, and have folks uh, who are, are doing connected work with our students on the front lines um, think about uh, tweaking how they engage and connect with with uh, the students that they're serving. Um, for me, I, I feel like my drive um, as a scholar is to help move the needle um, for more equitable outcomes for uh, you know 
as many students as possible, but particularly, you know, my, my work centers, you know, men, um, also very much um, LGBTQ plus populations. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so those are sort of the areas that I, I concentrate in. But I do think that a lot of the work that, that I'm trying to forward, I think also can open up and be expansive to help a lot of folks just beyond those you know, two particular populations that I named. Um, so that's really what I'm hoping that folks get out of this work. Yeah, absolutely. So you have, you've written a lot, you've, you've published a lot, you've got some great expertise you've established in the field of, of leadership and leadership development. So what I want to know next is outside of what we think of as this traditional leadership canon, what is it that you're reading or watching or listening to that's giving you some good insights into some other areas of leadership right now? Yeah. So this, I think, is probably <laughs> the hardest question. I was, I've been <laughs> racking my brain around this. And I think one of the things that, uh, you know, comes to mind for me is I am one of those people who, um, I don't know why uh, there have been articles written about it, but I watch The Office and Parks and Rec on a loop on Netflix. And for me... I go back to both of those. I finish one, one and then I'll switch to the other. Um, I, I think part of it is that there's some really interesting pieces about like clear examples in the office of what not to do as a leader. Um, right? And so that's sort of an interesting piece. Um, in Parks and Rec, almost sort of the, the, I do see like the critical hope in a lot of sort of the Leslie Nope-isms of that sort of um, piece. And so for me, I do think that there's some interesting pieces there. Um, you know, I, I'm a, 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 I've become much more of a, of a podcast person. And so uh, for me, um, you know, the, the 1619 um, series uh, through the New York Times um, is, is something that I think is, uh, really important to think about in terms of the historical context of uh, racism um, mm. systemically um, within our country and the ways that that then plays out within um, just how we do things. Um, I also am a big fan of, of, of Queer Eye. And so, you know, especially I was just watching, I just binge watched the recent release of, of, um, the episodes where they're in Japan, and um, and so for me, it's I know that there are certainly problematic pieces with Queer Eye, and 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 I'm it's not above um, critique, and so. But I think one of the things that I think about, particularly as it aligns to my research, um, is I think it's incredibly beautiful to see five men. Um, like physically touch one another in mm. friendship and intimacy in a way that sometimes we don't actually see within popular media and, and what that might mean for us in terms of um, cultivating relationship with one another. And there was a beautiful sort of piece and understandably cultural differences, but in one of the recent episodes, um, you know, the two, two Japanese friends who have been, friends for so long and they sort of acknowledge that they've never actually had a they've never hugged each other before oh, wow. the queer eye guys are there um and and so again it sort of is interesting in terms of like well of course like cultural culturally there may be different norms and i i, I understand that um but again i just feel like you know sometimes i am i do believe that that especially with men homophobia has created such a prison for men to actually like physically, especially Western men, and, and uh, to sort of engage with one another in, in ways that can be, demonstrate affection and, and love and friendship. And, and so for me, that's like piece to just think about. It's not necessarily directly connected to leadership per se, but there are those pieces that, I, that I'm just sort of sitting with. So I guess that's what I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and there are such... Um, such, such great tie ins I think we see with Queer Eye about some of the messages we're trying to communicate and some of the challenges that we see in trying to do that in a way that, that is uh, it, it may be accessible for everybody. And it, it creates some very interesting conversations. Um, let's dig into some of those things you, you wanted to talk about with 
the masculinity and, and even in queer eye, those, those redefining of those notions. You know, you, you told me, and we said this at the beginning, masculinity is a term that means everything and it means nothing. So what, what does this term mean? What is it? And why is it important that we talk about it? Yeah. Well, and I, I appreciate you bring, looping it back to that sort of introduction statement, right? And, and so, you know, for me, I, I see uh, leadership and masculinity being very similar, right? Um, they are socially constructed ideas that have been passed down, and passed down um, through the ages um, to have very specific meanings. And yet, we also know that there are hundreds of different definitions an array of different definitions um, for each of these terms, right? Like, I mean, I, I remember, you know, I think Burns in, in his uh, book Leadership from 1977 outlines that there are over 350 different um, definitions of leadership, right? Mm -hmm. um, um, maybe I'm getting that wrong. I, I'll have to go back to my notes from Susan's class from Maryland. Um, so. <laughs> I won't tell Apologies if it's not in Burns's book, but there, are, you know, there are there are these hundreds of definitions, and masculinity from my research, um, you know, when I ask my participants, um, uh, you know, to define masculinity for me, oftentimes there's they struggle as men to define masculinity because partly there's well, are you asking about society's definition or are you asking about mine? Mm -hmm. um, the distinctions and differences and the nuances between those things, right? So, you know, to me, I, I see masculinity as being the pieces that are socially constructed messages around um, our behaviors, the roles that we play um, that are connected to gender, right? Um, and at the same time, I also think that a lot of the discussion has been that masculinity is sort of owned by men. And, and I would disagree. I think mas masculinity shows up and it affects women. Women are, are, you know, have their own sense and understanding of masculinity. Trans and gender nonconforming individuals, again, there's these systems that that I think cuts across gender. It's not necessarily just that it's men, although oftentimes it is sort of lumped together with men and masculinity or men and masculinities. And so, you know, I, I think for me, I'm, I'm just very conscious of the fact that I think that most of us in this, in our society are affected by masculinity. And, um, you know, I, again, I think in today's conversation, there's a lot of focus on toxic masculinity. Others would maybe talk about hegemonic masculinity. Um, some others talk about inclusive or healthy masculinities. And so again, I think um, for me, I, I am also a proponent of understanding that masculinity does not is not singular. There are multiple different types. Um, and also recognize and, and appreciate those folks who sincerely disagree with even masculinities being um, you know, a, a thing that we should be sort of focused on um, hmm. and how that may further complicate um, ways of understanding gender and, and um, self. And so, or centering the wrong thing, centering the dominant rather than um, other um, ways of, of expression. So, so yeah, so I mean, it's, it, to me, it's messy um, and it's not easy, um, but I do think that it's, it certainly is affecting so many of us in our in our daily lives. Yeah, and, and you wrote about this. You edited an edition of New Directions for Student Leadership, which was called Critical Perspectives on Gender and Student Leadership. And there's a chapter in there that you write, uh, which is about masculinity and leadership and liberatory pedagogy. And you say in there, you say, we need to continue disaggregating men as one singular monolithic identity Instead, it must be understood that one's maleness or one's masculinity is just one part of one's larger holistic identity. And I just I think that's such an important idea when we're trying to wrap our, 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 our minds around this topic and what it means when we're working with students. And so this disaggregation and, and understanding this as a component of people's identities, not the whole thing, what does that enable us to do as we work with students? Absolutely. Well, and I think, you know, I just want to give a shout out because I, I um, 
my colleague uh, Cameron Beatty also co-authored and, and took the lead on, on that article. We, we yeah. collaborated together on it. Um, but I think one of the things that Cameron and I were, were really trying to do in terms of talking about this is that oftentimes, um, you know, when we look at the, at the scholarship on men in higher education, there has been often a conflation to really sort of think about men as just like, well, this is men versus women, right? Um, in the mm. leadership literature, there's a lot of studies that talk about gender um, without disaggregating what, what does it look by race? What about social class? What about other aspects of identity, right? Um, it upholds a false binary that, that men and women are, are opposites or that there is only just men and women, right? And so there's an erasure of even uh, trans or gender nonconforming folks. And so, the, you know, I think for me, um, that statement is really to help us remember that men, when we talk about men, we can't just be focused on white men. Um, you know, I think one of the things, one of the, my major critiques with Guyland is that, you know, Michael Kimmel did all these interviews. And, you know, when I go back through the book, there's a few different statements, I think only a couple of sentences that really specify this is not reflective of men of color's experiences based upon my research. Um, mm -hmm. The large notion of his book is that it really centers white men, but he doesn't use the terminology of white men. He doesn't use the adjective of cisgender men, right? And, and so for me, I think that reinforces a level of erasure and, and, and makes assumptions that then can be very problematic and very dangerous because, again, we need to have more specificity and more, we need to use our language to help also be clear about who we're talking about. When we collapse everything, it gets into a muddy spot because it, it, it starts to have us think that all men are alike. And, and again, like we've just said, we were both marking up those pages of Guyland as, our, as ourselves, right? Um, saying, well, I don't know that that speaks to my experience or that's a critique that I might have about this. And so, again, I, I think that's, that's sort of uh, a, a larger example of what happens when we don't disaggregate. And, and again, I think that that becomes a critical piece that for scholars and folks who are doing this work, we can't just make an assumption that all men are the same. Uh, just like we can't do that for any other group. So again, we need to be more thoughtful in terms of disaggregating um, and understand how individuals' sense of their, their gender identity, their gender expression, their sex, um, all of those things are different. Um, they may be connected, but they are substantially different nuanced things, and we need to be more thoughtful about um, about acknowledging that and really being able to articulate that. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's draw this connection to leadership. And and you know when we talk about uh, leadership, when we teach sort of the historical Western leadership theories, all of the textbooks start with what are literally called great man theories of leadership. And so you know we're saying in leadership studies that. Ideas of masculinity and ideas of leadership have been intertwined from the beginning, uh, and I think you know modern leadership theory works really hard to uh, you know sort of separate those ideas, but we have connected them uh, at the core. And so, how does that foundation, that connection between ideas of leadership and ideas of masculinity, how does that influence how we think about leadership and how we talk about it now? Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting to me because, again, I, I, I'm still doing a lot of work and thinking around this. Um, but, you know, I think one of the things that I sit with uh, of, of being interested in leadership and being interested in masculinity is the ways in which, um, you know, the, the concept of, of great man theory um, sort of morphed into trait theory, right? Um, and, mm -hmm. and, and so that the, you have these specific leadership traits and often that they are innate, you're born with them, they are things that you either have or you don't have. Um, and, you know, I think, again, then 
I think even in contemporary leadership theory, we have examples of sort of trait 2.0 or 3.0, even within current models. So, you know, uh, the fact of of strengths quest or strengths finder again those are those are still to me very trait based pieces hmm. there is a distinction and difference in terms of um that it's coming from an asset perspective potentially but again i think that there are still ways that have been informed from particular notions of power and privilege and that don't always take into account um, how um, closely tied um, sort of these notions of, of masculinity and patriarchy are within leadership. Um, you know, I think even when I remember back, you know, and I think that there has been some movement in this, but, you know, I remember that there in, in the Northaus text, for example, um, you know, there was a specific chapter on gender and leadership when I was going through it. Um, I think it's even still maybe this way um, as a larger critique, but when gender is a code word for women, right? Um, it's not actually looking at gender, it's looking at women in leadership. And so there's also like a, um, an assumption that we have to have sort of a, a standalone chapter that talks about, you know, women in a particular way that's that's coded and that there's no conversation about what about men in leadership well you know other people would point out well that's the rest of the book um you know and so to me that's problematic i think when we layer on a racialized lens then it even goes to like well really is it great man theory or is it often sort of seen as great white man theory right um and and with maybe a couple of folks who are brought in as other examples that might be a token and and so again i just when I, I get a little nervous about the ways in which we, we really frame leadership from a very white, dominant perspective without sort of thinking about the ways in which we could actually be more expansive um, if we brought in um, a, a diff- different views of how different cultural groups and, and um, experience and think about leadership in a way that might look different than sort of again, these sort of 2.0, 3.0 models of great man theory um, that haven't necessarily evolved too much besides the ways that we talk about them or the language that we use. Um, so, uh, yeah, to me, I feel like that masculinity piece is still very much embedded because, again, how we talk about leadership is often very cis-heteropatriarchal, very um, much um, in line with um, sort of a white dominant middle upper middle class elite perspective and and i and i think to not really sort of name that can be dangerous because then when our students are going through particular students from minoritized populations um, and they're being taught whether that's in a workshop or a class these concepts about leadership that may not necessarily fit for them there's going to be dissonance and 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 then there's an expectation that of assimilation um, and and again that to me can be very um, problematic in terms of how we then sort of deal with that and and how the systems are also set up to create those systems of assimilation in terms of leadership practice um, so again I, I think I could go on for a long time about that but I, I do think that's a that's a continual concern for me as we think about the work that we do around leadership programming and, and leadership education. Well, and, and this is a theme in your work, right? This, this comes up uh, over and over again, calling us to talk about leadership in ways that is more expansive rather than exclusive. And, and so how do we do that? Where do we start? I, I think, you know, this is the, this is the hard part. I think, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't have the magic answer, but I think there are some things that I think um, can be incredibly helpful um, based upon my own practice and also I think um, from from hopefully the research that I do. But number one, I think it's about um, building in authentic, ongoing, sustained relationships with communities, right? Um, how can we engage um, others um, 
in a in a way that is not colonizing um, to understand how they see and practice and and um, learn leadership right I think um, there are ways that we can do that that can be very powerful um, particularly from an intergenerational standpoint um, I think that can be helpful um, I think listening to our students more um, I think mm-hmm. that can also be very um, illuminating and and illustrate to us what would need to change so what would it look like if we actually created relationships with our colleagues working in cultural centers um, and um, other spaces that um, might not necessarily come to a leadership office um, and see us as as partners right away Um, and how could we build retreats how could we build opportunities for storytelling and and resiliency circles and and um, opportunities for folks to collectively engage, right? I I think about the great work that some of my colleagues are doing around uh, research on student activism in higher education. And again, for me, I see student activism as a huge um, piece of leadership, right? Again, I think that many others don't necessarily always see it that way, um, but I see that as a huge opportunity uh, for folks to engage in community organizing and and leadership practice. I think thinking about the ways in which we we coordinate our student employment on campus and and provide opportunities for students to think about that as sites for leadership work. I mean, I think there are so many different ways that, that through collective coalition building and and community um, engagement, we could actually be much more expansive. You know, I think my colleagues, um, my colleague Brian McGowan and I, um, you know, we just published our our recent book, Men and Masculinities, and many of our contributing authors have talked about different ways, particularly for college men, um, that we could be thoughtful about um, helping them think differently or think more critically about what their sense of masculinity is. And partly partly why we think that's important is, again, as a personal growth um, to potentially help end sexism and to engage in gender parity and to be able to work towards equity, um, that becomes a critical piece because many of these men might become fathers down the line. They may become significant others. Um, and, and even if they don't, they are going to be working with people um, who may be different from them. And so how can you actually engage in ways, even just personally, that can connect to a leadership practice to actually be more um, empathic and to be engaged and to not necessarily create and, and reinforce these cycles of toxic masculinity or hegemonic masculinity in ways that can be damaging to others. And so, you know, to me, I, I think that's a, a, a huge piece. And so, you know, the book that we, we've crafted has outlined lots of different sort of delivery methods of how folks could actually engage in that expansive work, whether that's a retreat, whether that's a four-year comprehensive program or a two-year comprehensive program or um, just lots of different opportun- opportunities for folks to engage in this work. Well, and that's, I think, the other theme, the other thing that I see in, in a lot of the work that you're doing is this sense that, that, uh, of hopefulness, that we can continue to, to grow and improve and, and um, our, our students are, are changing. And, you know, I think nobody binges Parks and Rec without coming away with it, with a really ingrained sense of hopefulness, right? That's key to that, that show. Um, but I see this idea that younger generations are possibly thinking about masculinity differently, they're thinking about leadership differently. And, and so what do you see changing? And and what do you think that means for this conversation going forward? Yeah. Well, several years ago, my, my um, dear friend and, and colleague Paige Haber-Curran and I um, did a very small sort of exploratory study with uh, men who were in our leadership minor um, program. And um, one of the things that came out in, as a, an, art, it's an article that's in the Journal of uh, Leadership Education is sort of thinking about the ways in which men were thinking 
differently, um, like you named, around leadership practice. And particularly, I think a lot of the research that is out there around leadership um, and gender, and particularly looking at gender differences between men and women, again, apologizing for the binary, but that is sort of what it has done. Um, they there has been a sort of notion that, that men will always sort of gravitate more towards sort of the, the role um, or sort of the, the power dynamic rather than the relationship. And what we found was actually that that was changing, that men were much more in thinking about um, leadership as, you know, sort of a relationship-oriented process, um, less about sort of like the power or the control that they might have um, as a leader themselves. And so to me, that, that, is, um, that does give me hope. Um, I, and I see that with the students who, you know, I am connected with um, on my campus or when I go out and chat with, with folks at other institutions, I do see that there is a shift. I think that, you know, with Generation Z, I think with millennial students, we are starting to see some differences in terms of thinking about both masculinity and leadership. And in an age of hashtag me too and other movements towards gender equity, um, I think that these are uh, times that can be sometimes confusing. And I understand that because gender role socialization is sometimes it, it shifts and um, things that they may have been told may no longer be, um, you know, uh, true. And, and, mm -hmm. and so there are some different things that I think um, some young men may be confused by. Um, and again, I think that's all the more reason why we need to have conversations in colleges, but also well before in middle school and high school with young boys and men um, talking about masculinity, talking about gender, talking about um, what all of these messages that they receive and how to make sense of them. Because again, I, I feel like um, it can be very confusing and overwhelming for, for lots of people. Um, and there are many grown adult men who I think sometimes are still confounded by and confused by um, what masculinity means to them versus what it means to their partner versus what mm. it means to um, just sort of their parents. Um, and so, again, I, I think, you know, to me, I do, I do see a sense of, of that critical hope. I see folks organizing. I see folks sort of coalescing um, and trying to think differently about these things. And, 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 I, and I, I think that's exciting to me because I, 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 I think those, those um, that provides a, a movement forward for us um, in higher education to also think more critically about how we can actually engage in equitable outcomes a bit more directly. Um, I think that is one thing about our field. I think, unfortunately, sometimes we are entirely reactive rather than proactive. Mm -hmm. And I think when I look at sort of the younger generation, um, they are they are telling us very clearly, very frankly, what we need to be doing differently. Um, and so if we could actually start to model some more of what they're trying to do in terms of being proactive rather than reactive, I think that also could be very exciting um, and also um, help us um, in higher education move things forward in a way that can be um, much more around equity and inclusion and access um, in ways that I think we've we've been in a rut on in, in many ways mm. currently. That's so encouraging. I mean, you're right. It's, it is a, it's a hopeful time for us and, and for those of us who engage in this work. I think sometimes that hope is what, we, is what keeps us going and, and what enables us to, to really dig down and do the work that we do. Dan, as you have done this, have you, as you've dug into this research and as you spent your time thinking about this, what has surprised you about it? I think for me, the thing that is surprising is that in many ways, there's still a lot of work to do, um, particularly around this sort of connection between masculinity and leadership, because I think for so long, 
Um, there has not been a gendered analysis of leadership. Um, there has just been sort of this assumption that it is sort of, this is how it is. Um, and so the gendered analysis really was focused, uh, you know, over the last, I would say, you know, 30 years, um, maybe plus, um, on sort of, you know, when we talk about gender, it's often coded as women. And so, um, and so it's, we've been very late to the game to really think about, well, what does that actually mean for men in terms of leadership and masculinity and how these things are connected? Um, and so to me, I feel like um, there's a little bit of catch-up um, and, and in the literature, at the very least. Um, I, I would also say, you know, I think even in practice, um, there's a piece that is concerning to me of, you know, there have been a lot of institutions that have created women's leadership summits or leadership women, you know, women's leadership retreats. And I think those are really important. Um, what I haven't seen as much of, although there are some out there, are the same for men um, mm. to really be thoughtful and critically self-reflect on the connection of masculinity and leadership. And, and again, I'm not advocating that we get rid of or we put more resources, you know, unnecessarily to, you know, a, a folks who may be having dominance and power and around gender um, unnecessarily. But I do think that there could be some really helpful outcomes if we allowed folks to connect with one another in meaningful, authentic ways that wouldn't necessarily uphold hegemonic or toxic masculinity, um, that could be very effective um, for young men and their development and their learning. Um, and so to me, it's, it is somewhat surprising that that, that hasn't necessarily taken um, shape as much as I think we have been thinking about other identity-based groups and thinking about their own promotion of, of leadership. Um, so to me, I think that's, that's sort of an area that I, I would like to see more development of. I think one of the things that's been exciting this year, I've been working with a men of color initiative on our campus, um, working with undergrads who then are mentoring other, other students at one of the local community colleges to help them think about college going culture. And so getting the chance to be in the room weekly with the 13 young men that are our mentors um, here on this campus, it's been a real joy because we have conversations about identity. We have conversations about toxic masculinity. We have conversations about resiliency and critical hope and um, mental health and well-being and all these really important topics. But these are topics that many of these men don't would, wouldn't have gotten if they weren't in this particular um, group. Um, and so again, I, I just think that how can we replicate that for others and how can we do that so that way um, so other folks can benefit from these incredibly rich conversations that really could be helpful um, for so many people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been so interesting, so uh, intriguing thinking about this idea of masculinity and, and leadership and getting to hear about your work. Uh, finally, Dan, what's the next question about leadership that you're thinking about? Well, there are, uh, yeah, question is, is hard because <laughs> there are, are so many questions that I have. Um, you know, I think for me, uh, I do, um, I do go back um, regularly to think about sort of my interest with leadership identity development and the ways in which uh, we come to understand that sort of um, part about ourselves as a form of our personal identity. Mm. Um, and so for me, I'm, I'm, I think that there are some pieces there as it connects to gender that I'm really curious about. Um, and, and so that is of interest to me to sort of um, think about that potentially. Um, I, I think there also are so many opportunities to still sort of think about um, much of what we talked about um, in this conversation in this hour together um, around sort of how masculinity and um, in some ways whiteness and and also dominant sort of ideas really inform and what happens with folks 
um, who don't necessarily um, subscribe or have those um, sort of uh, experiences? And, and so how, what, what meaning-making do they have around their own practices of leadership? I think that's a critical question that we need to sort of think about and examine. Um, you know, I think about the, the beautiful work um, that John Dugan did in his book of, of sort of um, applying leadership through a critical lens. And so for me, I think that's another piece that I, I really think is an important um, aspect to also continue to forward in, in some different ways. And, and I'd love to go back to eventually to some of the work that um, Dr. Haberkern and I um, sort of looked at in, in sort of um, talking with men about their leadership practices, but particularly thinking about that from a critical perspective and disaggregating and looking at what that looks like um, based upon um, different identity um, uh, identities that folks might have. And so those are some of the questions that are really intriguing to me at this point. And, and probably tomorrow I'll, I'll be inspired by something else because uh, that's what happens to me. I have a long running list of questions. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but those are some of the things that, that come to mind for me right now. That's great. And, you know, that's, that's the great thing about my job is that I get to keep asking those questions, keep hearing those questions, and then talk to really smart people about them. So that's a lot of fun for me. Uh, thanks to everybody for joining us for the NASPA Leadership Podcast, which is presented by the NASPA Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. Huge thanks to our guest today, uh, Dan Tilbaugh. Thank you so much, Dan. What a great conversation this was. Thank you. Uh, you can get more information about the Knowledge Community on our various social media outlets, uh, including our Twitter. We're at NASPA, S-L-P-K-C, or on Instagram, we're at NASPA underscore S-L-P-K-C. Uh, you can connect with me on Twitter. I'm at John Mark Day. Uh, we're going to put Dan's socials on the uh, podcast descriptions. When you download this, you can find that right there. We do, though, want to give a shout-out to his new book uh, that he co-edited called Men and Masculinities, Theoretical Foundations and Promising Practices for Supporting College Men's Development. talked about it a little bit today, but it's currently available through Stylus Publishing. And Dan is giving everybody out there a 20% off discount uh, if you use the code MASK20 at checkout. That's M-A-S-C 20. Uh, you'll get 20% off the price for that. And if you are interested in being a guest on the podcast, if you have suggestions for topics we should be talking about, people we should be talking to, we want to hear from you, you can send us an email to naspaleaderpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Thanks, Dan. And we will talk with you all next time.